Well, well, he handles that. <laughs> um, just wanted to say really quick, as I'm sure all of you are aware, um, the church begins observing a, what's called the season of Advent um, today, early last night. And I know, I'm sure all of you know what Advent is, but it's um, before all of the church's litur- major sort of liturgical feasts, it's traditional that um, we're invited into kind of a period of preparation. So Lent precedes Easter, which is the highest sort of feast day of the liturgical year. And of course, at Christmas, we celebrate kind of where we began. Um, Larry talked about how we believe that not only as Christians do we seek God, but God also seeks us, that God comes so radically near as to take on our own nature and walk the earth and speak in a human voice. And even, as we'll talk about when we talk about the Eucharist, to give him, give us his very self in the, in the his body and blood in the Eucharist. So Christmas is, is the feast by which, of course, we celebrate the the sort of visible public revelation of that fact, that God has become man. And so the church invites us Usually it's four weeks. This year, because of the way Christmas falls, we only get really three full weeks of Advent. Christmas is actually the, the day after the fourth Sunday of Advent to sort of prepare for the celebration of that, that great mystery of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus. Just one suggestion, if you're looking for a way to sort of do that, to enter into the season, if you will, to prepare, one great way that I recommend is there are special readings that are assigned to every single day of Advent for the Mass. Um, and so, I know many of you attend Mass here, but, but if you don't, and if you don't come to Mass during the week, you can read those readings. You can find different ways, I'll put one on the board, uh, to get access to those readings. And a lot of it's a matter of looking at the prophets and looking at the ways that Christ's birth among us was foretold for centuries throughout the, the history of Israel. And so, if you're looking for a way to enter into the Advent season, that might be a great way to do it. It's just to pray with the readings of the Mass that are designated for that, uh, that given day. The way that I get access to them, the, the um, how do you get your, do you have like I do, I breviary, yeah. That's right, so, okay, great, yeah. okay, so I'll write that up here. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's really handy, it's free. Uh-huh. This is an app. And I've yeah, so I did this in. this morning, yeah. uh, looking up the mass readings since I couldn't go to mass this morning. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So it's breviary. it's I-B-R-E-V-I-A-R-Y, and the word breviary refers to a, I'll bring it down here sometime, it's a, um, it's a book, it's a collection of prayers, um, of psalms that um, ordain priests and religious and deacons um, make a promise to pray every single day, but really it's the prayer of the church, it's a prayer that anybody can and I think really should pray, because it's, it's based around the psalms, which are the prayers that Jesus himself would have prayed, so um, it's something, I'll bring it down here, like I said, one week to show you what it looks like, but this app essentially gives you access yeah. to those prayers and also gives you access to the readings for every day. So it's, it's that. Um, in the top left corner, there's a toggle that says pray. You click on that and you click on readings. And as you download the days, you'll have access to the different readings for the Mass. So again, just if you're looking for a way to get into Advent, that might be a, a great way to do it. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, let's go ahead and begin with our prayer. And I'm going to turn over to Larry. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen. <clears throat> Almighty God, during this holy season, we prepare our hearts to celebrate the great generosity by which you give us the greatest gift conceivable, the gift of your very Son, who came to earth to walk in our nature and ultimately to offer himself in sacrifice for our sins. We ask that by your grace, you might help us to use this time well to prepare our hearts for that celebration, and that all that we might say, think, and do bring you greater glory and honor. Bless this time that we have together this afternoon to learn more about your revelation and your will for our lives. And we commend all of our prayers to you through the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord, the Lord is, is with thee. thee. Blessed, blessed art thou among, among women, and blessed is the fruit, fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners, sinners 
now, now and, and at the, the hour, hour of, of our death. death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And you've got one on, so. Okay. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, Father. Um, so our topic is the church, continuing from last time. Anybody want to ask anything before we start? So, so last time we looked at the church is visible and invisible, and we saw, we're going through the four um, marks of the church that we say in the creed, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And so last time we spoke about one and holy, and so today we'll go on to Catholic and apostolic, all right? Um, so Catholic means universal, all right? Simply the Greek word for universal. Let's sit down here. And so that's a, um, part of this, the four marks of the church that we say in the creed, are, they tell us what the church is or who she is, but at the same time, they, give, they enable us to recognize her because there are lots of um, ecclesial bodies um, that claim to be the true church, right? I mean, just think of all the Protestant denominations, the Greek Orthodox, um, and so the Catholic Church makes a claim to be the one true church, which is um, can be seen by other Christians as um, arrogant or something like that. But the, the four marks that we say in the creed help us to identify. In other words, when we're looking for, well, well, the reason why this is important is we want to be in the church that Jesus founded 2,000 years ago, right? He founded the church. And so I want to be in his church, not a man-made church or a church founded 500 years ago, say at the Reformation, or a church founded, I don't know, that split off 1,000 years ago. I want to be in the church that Jesus founded. And the creed gives us these four marks by which we can recognize it. And sometimes, I mean, it's not that hard if you look at these four marks, because um, especially the second one we're going to do today, apostolic, but even Catholic. So Catholic means in the whole world. And therefore, the true church, the one founded by Jesus, ought to be a church that's present in the whole world. And that means in every culture, speaking every language, um, North, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, Western Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere, etc. Um, and um, going back to the beginning, in other words, going back to the year 33, to, to Pentecost. And the fact is the Catholic Church is the one church that matches that. Right? It's found in the whole, whole world. And other churches, they might have some missionaries in different places, but they tend to be um, principally where they started. Right? So Lutherans in Germany. right? So Europe, yes, we got Lutherans here in Missouri, but it's not, um, it's not the one universal church that was present from the beginning. Um, and we could say about the same about any other group. And there's, so that's just... That's often called apologetics. Apologetics is um, kind of arguing sometimes, and you don't want to do this in an argumentative way because it's a matter of discovering the truth, but um, it, debating about which is the true church. But there's a second dimension that's no less important, and that's the beauty of it. There's something very beautiful about being in a church that has a billion members, and that mass is celebrated in every language practically that exists. Not 
that's pretty amazing. So the Catholic Mass that we celebrate here in the Basilica, um, you can have it celebrated in, you name it. Even, um, so Swahili, um, Mandarin, whatever, even Hebrew. So I, um, I studied um, Hebrew to read the, the Bible, and there's a church in Jerusalem where they celebrate the Mass, the same Mass, but in the Hebrew language, right? And the same thing, Arabic, obviously, and you name it. Um, and that's, that's beautiful because Christ wanted a bride that would be universal. Right? In other words, he died for his church. And so it doesn't make sense that that church would remain tiny. It should expand, right? And there are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament about the church that pictures. So one of my favorite is, um, if, um, it was the reading for Mass yesterday on, on Saturday. And it was... Um, um, a king of the king of Babylon who destroyed the, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, his name is Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream of a statue with four, made out of four metals. I don't know, if, did I talk about this? No, okay. Yeah, so it's a statue made of four metals, and the, the king sees um, a rock not cut by human hands hit this statue in the feet of iron. So it's gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And this rock, not cut, not cut by human hands, hits it in the feet, shatters the whole statue, which becomes chaff or dust. Um, and that rock grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And it will never end. Right, so that's the, the dream. And so the prophet Daniel interprets it, that the four metals are four human kingdoms. So um, think of the Babylonian um, Ancient kings, and still modern ones too, uh, or presidents, um, want to make empires. And so there was the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. That was Alexander the Great, who basically conquered the whole civilized world, and, and the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was the strongest um, iron in this uh, statue, and it's in the feet of iron that this rock hits it. The rock not cut by human hands. All right, who's that? That's Jesus, right? So his, um, the fact that he's God and his virginal conception, he's the rock not cut by human hands. He hits the statue at its feet of iron, time of the Roman Empire, and those kingdoms disappear. There's no more Roman Empire, right? There's no more Greek Empire. There's no more Babylonian Empire or Persian Empire. But we look out in the world, and there is a kingdom, not a secular kingdom, right, but a religious kingdom called the Catholic Church, that is in the whole world and has lasted 20 centuries. That, that, not, um, that ought to strike us as amazing. Jesus made a, not, not Jesus, but before Jesus, the prophet Daniel basically made a prophecy that there would be a kingdom different from the other kingdoms. And it would be different because it wouldn't have a human origin and because it would grow and expand to the whole earth, those other kingdoms never made it to the whole earth. Right, the Roman Empire got pretty far, but it's basically Mediterranean world. Um, but the Catholic Church is in the whole world, and it's lasted um, far longer than the Roman Empire. Maybe the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years, but the Catholic Church now is two thousand. Okay. All right. So, um, so that's what we mean by Catholic, and so it's something beautiful to be part of this body that includes all cultures, and that means all um, different gifts of mankind. Every culture in, in the world has its own special gift, 
right? So, um, and every people takes pride in their individuality, right? So Americans take pride in being Americans, but of course we're a melting pot and we came from all different places and, and every culture likewise. But what's so beautiful is the church can claim all the riches of all the cultures, but she purifies those cultural traditions um, by faith in Christ, all right? So the, Catholic, the church is Catholic, universal. And we, this was already um, proclaimed in the year 107, so that's that quote, where there is Christ Jesus, there is the Catholic Church, from St. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived um, the, at the end of the first century and was a disciple of the apostles. And so the church, um, Catholic, means she's in all cultures, but it also means she has the universality, the totality of all the means of salvation. And the means of salvation are scripture, um, so the faith, tradition, and the magisterium, and the seven sacraments. So baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing, holy orders, and marriage. And, and the only church that comes close to the Catholic Church in having all the means is the Eastern Orthodox. But what they're missing is communion with the successor of Peter. We'll come back to that. All right, so she has the fullness of the means of salvation, and she's sent on a mission to the whole earth. So Jesus, before he died, the last, not before he died, sorry, before he ascended into heaven, so he'd already died, rose from the dead, appeared to the disciples in Galilee, he gathered them all together, so there were 500 before he ascended, and he um, gave them what's called the missionary mandate, go out to the whole world and make disciples of every creature, of every human being, of every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've taught you. Right, so that's the, called the missionary mandate. And that mission of the church continues in every century. Right? So on account of this missionary mandate, in every century there are missionaries who go to countries or societies that haven't fully heard the gospel. Right? And today that would be Asia and parts of Africa. And now, unfortunately, also Europe and, and uh, the Western world is in need of more evangelization. Ah, because we've, we received the faith, but lots of, so um, in the last, say, 100 years, um, the st statistics show that there are fewer um, baptized, fewer practicing Catholics than in a previous time here, not in the world. So in the world, the Catholic Church is, has always been growing, but it doesn't always grow in every particular place. And so in the United, United States, is better off than Europe. So Europe has um, seen a, a significant reduction in, I mean, people will still say, you know, on their census bureau, um, religion, Catholic, but they never go to church. And they don't actually believe very often. Um, not everybody, but maybe more than half. Um, and so that's why um, the Western world needs missionaries now, too, of a different kind. Right, not, not the same. The church always is on mission. That's the point. Not to convert, but to revert. That's right, to revert, exactly. To rediscover those Catholic roots. And that's going to be true in part because of the Reformation. Right? So the Reformation, um, part of those Catholic roots were obscured by the divisions. And that also was a certain scandal to the world. Jesus says that seeing the unity of Christians will help people to come to believe. 
Okay, so let's look at the link be relationship between the Catholic, uh, let me do one. Um, so the Catholic Church, it's in the whole world, but it's not, it's divided into dioceses. Um, and so St. Louis is a diocese with a bishop. And so that means that the technical term is we're a particular church in the universal church. So the universal church of Christ is formed from um, a couple thousand dioceses, each with their own local bishop. So our local bishop lives across the street, Archbishop Rosansky. Um, and every diocese has a bishop. And in, um, every diocese, in some ways, is a, a complete part of the Catholic Church. A parish isn't, because a parish doesn't have a bishop. Right? So a parish, a, a diocese is divided up into different parishes, like the cathedral parish. All right? Yes, yeah, so that's a particular church. And the Easter, they call it something different, eparchy, but it comes down to the same. And it's presided over by a bishop who has apostolic succession, in other words, who's in line from the apostles. And so Archbishop Rosansky can trace his succession to the apostles. And has to be in communion with Rome, and this goes back to the first century, the St. Ignatius of Antioch, wrote to different churches. He was, um, did I tell his story? Really interesting person. He was bishop for, in Antioch, which is the first place where Christians were called Christians. And it's the first place that um, Gentiles came into the church. And Peter went there first, and then he went to Rome. And after Peter left for Rome, Ignatius became the bishop and was bishop for 50 years. And when he was a very old man, he was taken in a persecution from Antioch to Rome and was um, fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum. Um, as a, that was part of the, you know, like the gladiatorial um, spectacle. And, um, and so he's a martyr, one of the early martyrs. And he wrote seven letters to seven churches on his way. And in every church, he speaks of um, how important it is to be in union with your bishop, because that's the principle of unity of every particular church. Um, but when he writes to Rome, he speaks to the Church of Rome as the church that presides in charity. So all the churches, in some sense, are equal in having a bishop. But the Church of Rome has, as a bishop, the successor of Peter. And that gives it a special place, and we'll come back to that, to be the, um, kind of the principle of unity of the whole church. Right? So that's the pope, and that's today Pope Francis. Yeah. Uh, so, Saint Louis is a diocese. So we say archdiocese. That's not important. It's an archdiocese. Yeah. Archdiocese. Yeah, and that just simply means in every state, um, there's going to be. That's right. Yeah. So there are going to be might be several dioceses, but one of them is going to be um, an archdiocese. In practice, it doesn't make any difference to for us. It's like more of a, something having to do with canon law. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. yeah, so St. Louis is an archdiocese, but um, Cape Girardeau is just a diocese, or Jefferson City, or Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. St. Louis is an archdiocese. Right, right. And then Kansas City, Kansas. Like, that's for right, for Missouri, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that would be Chicago, right? And then um, Kansas would be Kansas City, Kansas. But for our purposes, that's just, um, that's a man-made, so some things in the church, so this is really important, some things in the church 
come directly from Christ, and the church can't change them. Other things come from the church herself, and they can be changed. So um, what can't be changed is that the church um, is divided into different dioceses. Each one has a bishop. That's from, we could say, from Jesus and from God. But that there be archdioceses and dioceses, that's from the church, that's canonical, that can be changed. And it's the same with regard to cardinals. So uh, the cardinals are those who elect the pope, and usually they're bishops. And that's not from Jesus. That's from the church. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just simply means that it's something changeable. Okay, who belongs to the church? Um, so all human beings in some way belong to the church, but not fully. Right, so we're trying to do a kind of, um, so it's, it's not a simple yes, no. Are you a member of the church? Yes or no. Um, in some way we could say that, and that's baptism that gives one entrance. But there are grades of belonging to the church. Right, so that's what the catechism is saying here. So all human beings belong in some way in the sense that it's God's will. God is calling them to enter the church. Right? So there's no human being who isn't ordered to the church in God's mind. The problem is we don't know that. right? Some of us know that, but not everyone knows that. right? Otherwise, they would be in, come into the church as you are doing. Yeah. So what does it mean to be fully incorporated into the church? That is, those who... So there's two parts here, invisible and visible. The visible part is the part I put in red, profession of faith, the sacraments, and ecclesiastical government. And it's what we talked about last time when we talked about the unity of the church. We said the church is one in having the same faith that we profess in the creed, the same sacraments, those are the seven sacraments, and the same governance. Not that everyone has the same bishop, no. Every diocese is a different bishop, but all the bishops are in communion with one another and with the successor of Peter. Right, so that's what it means to be fully incorporated in a visible way. It means I have to be baptized, I have to be a member of the, of the church in communion with the Pope. And then also, I have to have the spirit of Christ. Now that's invisible, and nobody can know for sure that I do or don't. But it simply means, Am I aware of mortal sin? If I'm aware of mortal sin that I haven't repented of, then I don't possess the Spirit of Christ. But if I am aware of it and repent of it out of love, well, then already I've been brought back into the Spirit. So it's repentance that opens the door. Right? And then for Catholics, there's a sacrament, the sacrament of, of penance or confession. All right? So that's what it means to possess the spirit. So to be fully incorporated into the church means to be in a state of grace and to be um, baptized, profess the same faith, the same sacraments, and to share the same um, government. And that means the, the same bishops in communion with each other and the pope. All right, so that's, that's straight, that visible part is straightforward, but the invisible part, which is more important, why is the invisible part more important? Because the invisible part is what determines heaven or hell. I have to die with the spirit of Christ to be in his kingdom for eternity. So it's more important that I die with his spirit 
than that I die as a member of the visible church. Because it can happen that people are members of the visible church who don't repent, who are living in mortal sins that they haven't repented of and don't intend to. And they're what we call dead members of the church. And if I die that way, I don't join his kingdom forever. In other words, I go to hell. And it's possible to be the opposite, to be not a member because I never heard of the Catholic Church. Let's suppose I live in parts of China. Um, so there are tons of people, probably uh, maybe, I don't know, a billion people um, who've never heard the name Jesus Christ. And so they're invincibly ignorant. And there can be a lot more who are invincibly ignorant because it's, you can be invincibly ignorant and have heard the name Jesus, but never have it presented in a credible way, in a proper way. And so invincible ignorance means I'm not responsible for not knowing about the Catholic Church and not entering her. And if I'm not responsible for it, that's not a sin on my part. Right? And so it's possible for me to repent of the sins that I know about, that I know about in conscience, not be a member of the church, and still be saved because I'm dying with the Spirit of Christ. Only God knows how many people are in that situation, and it's, not a, it's a, still a tragedy because it's far better to be in his visible body where we get the fullness of his life. And that hopefully will get more clear as we go along. But it's above all through the sacraments and the fullness of her teaching. Um, all right, does that make sense to everyone? So to fully incorporate is to have both invisible and visible unity with the church. So if you are of another denomination, mm -hmm. Right. Right. I'm saying that when we die. Mm -hmm. Right. We won't be judged for what we didn't know. We'll be judged for what we did know. Okay. And what we do know is what conscience speaks. And the fact that, so we might be tempted to think, well, everybody always obeys their conscience. But um, I think if you read the newspaper and read literature and look into your life, it's not true, right? We don't always obey our conscience. So that's what we, every human being will be judged by, have we been faithful to the voice of our own conscience? And that conscience, one of the things it does is leads us to inquire and to seek. Mm -hmm. And so I would be going against my conscience if I didn't care to seek. Mm -hmm. And I just said, well, who cares? That, that would also be again, and so I'll be judged by that. In other words, indifferentism isn't a good thing. But to be mistaken is not something that anyone will go to hell for. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, because God looks at the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really important. Because otherwise we'd get a, a skewed idea of God. Right? He is love, and therefore he won't punish those who love him and were simply um, deprived of the full knowledge. But at the same time, it's a great gift to have that full knowledge, and we should thank him mm -hmm. for it. Right? Because um, for, for lots of reasons, but um, maybe the most important reason is to receive the fullness of the sacraments and above all the Eucharist, um, which is Christ's own body giving us his own life and feeding us with love. Now, I can receive that um, unworthily and still be lost right? and still be damned because I receive him without um, respecting what, he's, what my conscience is telling me. 
So it's not, the sacraments aren't magic, and belonging to the church isn't magic, right? Where everyone, uh, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's to be fully incorporated. And then we could say the second rung of incorporation would be the Eastern Orthodox, because they've got the, all of those three, bonds of profession of faith, the sacraments, ecclesiastical government, except for union with the Holy Father, the Pope. So they would be the next, and then after them would be the Protestants, right? And, and, but again, we're talking about the visible church. The invisible, only God knows. All right? After, um, so what, what about those who are unbaptized? Well, Jews have a special link with the church greater than any other religion, and that's because God called Abraham. And first, to be the people in whom he would become incarnate. And so the Jews received God's true revelation. They received um, divine sonship, the covenant, the law, the Torah, right, the worship. Um, and above all, it was in the Jewish people that Mary gave birth to Jesus, God made man. Right? So the Jewish people, after um, the different Christian denominations, would be those who are closest. Right? And so in some sense, they're connected to the church, even though they're not members because they're not baptized. All right? And then um, other non-Christian religions, again, there would be, um, we could think of this as concentric circles. So Muslims would have a greater bond because they believe in one God. And they have part of Christian revelation. And then after Muslims, there would be other, um, say, Hinduism and um, polytheistic religions. All right? All salvation, so there's a phrase that you have to interpret correctly. That you, you can see, it'd be easy to misinterpret this. So the fathers of the church teach, outside the church, there's no salvation. And that seems to say exactly the opposite of what we just said. Right? We said that it's possible for people to be invincibly ignorant, and, but the, the fathers of the church tended to think that um, the, the faith really had spread to the whole world, which that was a lack of knowledge of geography. Um, and also, um, what it means, did I miss it? What we want to say is all salvation comes from Jesus Christ. Right, so that's absolutely true. Everyone who's saved ever is saved through Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary and from the grace that he won for us on the cross. So somebody who's invincibly ignorant, who's never been baptized, right, who's never heard of Jesus Christ, if, there's, if they um, receive grace invisibly and follow their conscience, they can be saved through Jesus Christ and through the church even though they don't know it. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll just read this. All salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. Hence, they cannot be saved who, knowing the church is founded by Christ and necessary for salvation, would refuse to enter. Now, you might think, well, who would do that? Well, it can happen. It can happen that in conscience, I come to see that the Catholic Church is the true church, but it may mean a big sacrifice. So, for example, for for Jews, that may mean that my family will count me as dead. 
All right, that didn't happen in my particular case. My dad was tolerant, and um, he said, I always preach tolerance, and now I have to practice it. But some Jewish, Orthodox Jewish families will celebrate a, like a funeral if you get baptized, if one of their children get baptized. And so you can see how there would be a strong temptation, and you would you know, be completely ostracized by the Jewish community. There was an interesting example of a, the chief rabbi of Rome during World War II um, became Catholic in 1945, right after the Holocaust, the, the Shoah. And it's big, Jesus appeared to him. And he had been prepared for this earlier, but he came to full faith in that year. And of course, you can imagine the reaction of the Jewish community was to completely ostracize him and his family. And so there can be temptations for people not to enter the church, even though they know that it's true, for human reasons. Could be social um, advancement, it, whatever. In, in, in our culture, that usually doesn't happen so strongly as in the past. But it could happen. Somebody could feel that their career would be advanced more if they weren't a devout Catholic. And so that is not invincible ignorance. And that would be a, a grave sin, right? If I don't enter, having come to see that she is the true church. Sorry, I keep on hitting this. Okay, so the, the flip side, though, is those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ and his church, but sincerely seek God and, moved by grace, try to do his will as it is known through conscience, can attain eternal salvation. Notice that the catechism doesn't say necessarily will attain, right? Because nobody knows, whether, first of all, whether they are um, completely repentant of, of grave sin um, and whether they'll continue to be, right? So we just simply, we can't know that we're going to be saved. That's a, um, a Protestant phrase, a Calvinist phrase. Once saved, always saved, right? The idea that I have to know that I'm saved, right? Sometimes um, Calvinists will ask you, are you saved? And for Catholics, that, that doesn't make sense. What the right term would be justified. I'm justified, I've been made just by baptism and um, the forgiveness of sins. And, and repentance, but I can't know for sure that I'll stay faithful, right? I hope it. So that's the object not of faith, but of hope. And nobody should be, you know, sleepless at night because of that. But today's gospel was watch, right? Um, be watchful. Um, and so everyone has to um, uh, be careful, right? To conserve the, um, the seed of grace. So by the way, that's called baptism of desire. If somebody ha is, let's say, um, doesn't know about the true church, is trying to do God's will, moved by grace, um, following conscience, and repentant of sins they're aware of. That would be baptism of desire, and that would already bring justification. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get baptized. Quite the contrary, because if you desire baptism, that means you desire to, be, to receive the sacrament and to enter the visible church. Okay, so it follows that the church needs to be missionary, right? It's, if we've received a treasure, it makes sense that we would want to share it. Now, sometimes people don't do that, right? If it's a material treasure, let's suppose I find a treasure in the ground, I might not want to tell anybody, right? Because I don't want to share it. But spiritual treasures don't get diminished by sharing them. They get enlarged. So the more we share our faith with others, 
the more we come to be, to have it alive in ourselves. Right? So there's, it would be crazy to hide um, the treasure of our faith and our um, being a member of the church. Right? And that's, it's like a temperature or barometer or something. It tells me how healthy I am spiritually, how much desire I have to share that with others. All right, so that's why the church is missionary. And that means um, to share it. And normally, though, we're going to share it in our own context. That means our family, first and foremost, right? So the family is, sometimes we say the domestic church, right? The, the family church. So that's the first place we want to share the faith with our loved ones, right? Especially children. And then secondly, um, all of our circle of friends, right? We should, if we're friends with somebody, it doesn't make sense that they wouldn't know about our Catholic faith and what it means to us. Um, and um, then our workplace. Now that's more difficult, right? There might be, um, that might be politically incorrect, but um, by way of friendship there, right? So not, uh, friendship is, is really the way in. And it's by example. People see that there's a joy in our lives and that, is the best way of evangelizing. Okay, questions on Catholic? Let's go on to missionary. Uh, sorry, just that. apostolic. So the church's apostolic means founded by the apostles and built on the foundation of the apostles. And so she's apostolic in her teaching. And as we have the same faith today um, that the apostles preached in the whole world. So when the apostles received from Jesus that missionary mandate, go into the whole world, um, they preached first in Jerusalem, um, Samaria, um, Syria, and then in Rome, in the whole Roman Empire, they preached that faith. And we have the same faith today. Now, it's not... It's the same in its essence, but there is a difference, and that is it's more developed today. But that is, it's really, it, the best analogy is, um, let's say, an acorn. An acorn um, sprouts, and it's an oak tree from the beginning. It just looks a bit different at the beginning than it does when it's fully mature. Or the same thing with a human being, right? The fetus um, is the same human being, um, but we grow. And so the, the faith that we profess, so our, the book that we're studying, the Catechism, couldn't have been written the way it's written today in the first century. That we actually do have a Catechism from the first century. It's called the Didache, if anybody wants to look it up. And it's, it's a great book, but it's a lot slimmer than our Catechism. What is it called? Didache, which simply means teaching. Um, yeah, you can find it online. Yeah, the teaching of the apostles. So this is like a manual for missionaries because this was before you had bishops in every city. And so you had itinerant preachers who would go out, say, from Jerusalem and share the gospel with a new community. And they would carry that book with them um, that would give some um, kind of, it speaks about the two ways, the way of light and the way of darkness, the way of light being the way of faith and the way of darkness, disbelief, um, polytheism, etc. And... Um, and it speaks a little about the sacraments. But anyway, my point is simply um, that 
after every council in the church, the church has put out a fuller creed and a, um, a fuller catechism. Not that we believe new things, that, because that would be impossible. Everything that we believe, we believe because it's revealed by, by Christ and the Holy Spirit to the apostles. But it's made clearer over time. And one of the ways it's made clearer is because there are fights about it. So take the Reformation. The Reformation is a classic example in which Christians were disputing about the meaning of things like justification, the sacraments, the Eucharist, and what, is the, um, what does it mean to be a member of the church. And in a, a dispute like that, the church has to come to know herself more deeply to answer the questions that are in dispute. And so that's how the, um, we want to say we have the same faith. Sorry, I'm hitting the wrong. Um, we've got the same teaching, but it's more developed, all right? And then secondly, the church is apostolic by her structure, and that's what we already mentioned, that the church is divided into dioceses, each one of which has a bishop. So that's the, and then within a diocese, there are priests, a whole college of priests. Here in St. Louis, we've got 250 or something, maybe even more, um, priests who um, help the bishop with his mission, and then deacons who help the priests and the bishop. And so those are the three levels of the sacrament of holy orders that we'll look at, at later on. And that's part of the structure of the church that Jesus established. Right? He, he established it by choosing the 12 apostles from among all the other disciples. And those were the original bishops. All right? So the word apostle means sent. It's just simply the Greek word for to send. And what Jesus said is, the Father has sent me, and so I am sending you. That's what he said to Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the other apostles. And so as he was sent by the Father, so the apostles were sent by Jesus to govern his church. So that's the meaning of it. And um, he made them witnesses of his life and his teaching. More importantly, his life. So they're witnesses first of having shared life with him. So in the ancient world, if you were um, a disciple of a, a rabbi, it, it meant something more than just coming to an RCA class once a week. You actually, right, the apostles lived with Jesus, and they shared life 24-7 with him um, and traveled with him, etc. And, um, and so therefore, the apostles were witnesses of his life, his death, and his resurrection and of all his teaching. And so it's both parts, his teaching and his life. And that was a, um, to be it. So after, so Jesus chose 12. Of the 12, one of them was Judas, who betrayed him. And so this is instructive. This has to do with what we talked about last time, the holiness of the church. Judas is a warning to us that um, we shouldn't leave the church because there are scandals and unholy people in positions of power. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen today, right? If Jesus, who knows everything, chose Judas, um, he, was setting, he was teaching something, that we shouldn't leave the church because there are bishops who might be like Judas. Our faith doesn't depend on the holiness 
of the bishops any more than it depends on the holiness of all the apostles, right? No one would be a Christian if, all they, if you had to believe that all the apostles were holy because they weren't. But Judas, um, while he was still an apostle, he would have baptized, he would have taught, and people should have listened to him. But just as Jesus said with regard to um, those who teach in the synagogues, do what they say, but not what they do if it's, if it's wrong. Okay, so the apostles are sent, and they're the chosen witnesses of his resurrection and of his founding the church. And he promised to remain with them until the end of time. That's at the end of Matthew's gospel, the missionary mandate. I will be with you. So after he says, go to all, all, the, all nations and preach the gospel to every, every human being, I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. Right? And so Jesus isn't visibly with us. Right? He, that's the meaning of the ascension. He left this earth 1,990 years ago with his visible presence. But he's with us in more than one way. He's with us in the Eucharist, right? So in, um, in the cathedral over there, and actually above us in the rectory, there's a chapel, and Jesus is there in the tabernacle. He's present with his Eucharistic presence. But Jesus is present also in another way, guiding the, um, the successors of the apostles. And he's with us when we pray and get together. So we should think Jesus is here as we do this class. And so Jesus promised that he would be with the apostles in governing the church. And that means that the apostles and their successors couldn't betray. Judas betrayed Jesus, right? But what the apostles can't do is betray the teaching of Jesus. And I'll explain that more. This is why we say that the church in her teaching office is infallible under certain rare circumstances. And I'll explain when that is. Um, and that's, so even though any particular pope might be unfaithful in his moral life, right? They're not guaranteed to be um, saints. But they're guaranteed that they won't betray Jesus' teaching in their, um, in their solemn teaching. And we'll come back to that. Okay, so, so what is apostolic succession? It's simply the fact that the church is governed by bishops who are successors of the apostles by linear succession. And the way that works is to be, become a bishop, you have to be ordained by other bishops. So that's how it gets passed on from one generation to the next. And the rite is very simple. It's the laying on of hands of usually three bishops um, laying hands Right, so the laying on of hands onto um, a priest who's made a bishop by that gesture and the prayer that accompanies it. Um, and so um, bishops um, make successors by the sacrament of holy orders. Right, and so that's what we call apostolic succession. And this was a big issue at the Reformation. So the different Reformation churches, for the most part, um, disbelieved in that and rejected apostolic succession. The one that kept it is the Anglicans. Right? So the Anglicans claim to have apostolic succession, but the Catholics think that they actually don't, and I, I don't want to get into the uh, debate about that. But the reason is simply because at the time of the Reformation, they went through an initial period where they, like, other, um, like the Calvinists, denied the office of bishop. And it was only 100 years later 
that they um, came to acknowledge apostolic succession. And in that 100-year period, they lost the continuity. They lost the apostolic succession. And that's the Catholic view about Anglican bishops, that they aren't in apostolic succession, even though they think that they are. But for the most part, other Protestants have no claim to be so, right? Because they rejected that. They thought that that was a man-made um, teaching rather than something coming from Christ. Right? But it's reasonable to think it's coming from Christ because he himself chose his apostles. And we see in the Acts of the Apostles, that's the book right after the four Gospels, and that tells us about the early church, that um, when um, Paul went on his missionary voyages, so he went to Turkey, he went to Greece, and what he would do in each city is appoint successors who would be bishops in every city. Right? And so we can see that the apostles made sure that the church wouldn't end with them, right? because Jesus found the church to last until the end of time. And so that's why it's so important that there be a means of succession in the church. And so that's where Orthodox and Catholics would totally agree on apostolic succession. The one problem, again, being communion with the successor of Peter. Okay, I think we've already said this. So who are the faith? So we've seen who are the bishops, successors of the apostles, who are the faithful in the church? And that's simply um, all those who are baptized. Um, and are in, so to be faithful in the fullest sense, those incorporated through baptism um, and therefore um, keep, and keep that unity of faith, um, sacraments, and governance. All the faithful have a fundamental equality. This is a beautiful thing. Baptism makes us sons and daughters of God and members of the body of Christ Christ is the head, and we're the members. And it doesn't matter what kind of member I am, whether I'm a bishop or I'm simply a member of the lay faithful. Ah, so that word lay faithful, lay refers to anyone who's not a, um, a bishop, priest, or deacon. So I'm a member of the lay faithful. So it's opposed to clerics, that's the technical term for somebody who has holy orders. And that would be bishop. Sorry. Or deacon. And in addition to that, some members of the church are consecrated religious. And that would be nuns and... Um, Friars or monks. Um, so that would be another. I'm going to say consecrated. But you'll hear this word religious. So religious is, has two meanings, or lots, more than two, I suppose. Um, so religious would simply mean I take my faith seriously. But here we're using it in a special sense someone who takes three vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience and enters into a form of life in which they don't get married and um, usually live in community. So that, um, the, we could say the church has these three parts. The lay faithful, clerics, that's, these would be only men, um, and I'll explain that, um, with holy orders, bishop, priest, and 
and deacon, and then consecrated religious, which are both men and women. All right, so the lay faithful, all the faithful have an equal dignity. So this is important, because um, somebody might think, well, there's a special dignity of the pope, and th that's true. The pope has a, a special dignity being the successor of Peter, but it's not, um, being pope doesn't give him a greater holiness. It's being baptized. That's the principal dignity of all the faithful. Um, baptized and confirmed. Um, it's like in, in the United States, right? Every citizen is equal, right? And it's not as if the president is more equal than anybody else. So it's similar in the church. So there's a true equality of the children of God. All right, so I just explained this. So the clerics, this is the hierarchy over here. Bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, hierarchy comes from the Greek word for order, sacred order. And it just simply means ecclesiastical governance. And the reason for this is every, so for the church to be a society in the whole world, right, it's one society, is it possible that a society be one and remain one over 20 centuries without any government? What would happen? Right, what would happen if in the United States, let's just kick out the president and all congressmen and senators and, and, every, and the judiciary as well? Um, what would happen? Anarchy, right? It would be hell on earth. Um, and the United States would not survive um, probably a year. Um, and it's the same in the church. Jesus, even though it's a supernatural society, a society of grace, it's still a society. And in fact, it's a lot bigger society, right? It's um, several times bigger than the United States. And so it needs a, a governance. And so Jesus provided for that by calling the apostles and instituting the sacrament of holy orders with three levels, bishops, priests, and deacons. All right. So that's Jesus's way of preserving um, his church over the centuries. And this is why at the Reformation, a lot of the dispute was precisely about this. Protestants, Martin Luther, rejected this, the sacrament of holy orders, and Calvin as well. And so that was, that's not a small thing. Right. If you attack the very governance of the church, that, I mean, that's a catastrophic attack. Um, when exactly did Jesus begin having the apostles? Like yeah, so it's given to us in the, um, in the four Gospels. Um, and it's um, Jesus called. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, just before the Sermon on the Mount, he calls the 12. And it's interesting because... It went in, and Mark and Luke give it this similar um, incident. And um, somebody's always mentioned first. Who's that? Peter. Peter. Right, in every list of the apostles. So let's just take a look at Matthew for a minute. Am I getting that wrong? Yeah, no, I'm getting that wrong. Where does he do that? It's number 10, yeah. So it's, it's chapter 10 of Matthew, um, verse two. The names of the 12, so he called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out and heal every disease. 
The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew. Matthew was taxed. So it's really interesting that of these 12 apostles, they're not, you know, the people that you would have picked. People hated tax collectors. To be a tax collector in Israel at that time was like, I don't know, what would be a, I mean, it's hard to think of a more um, hated profession. Um, and so the fact that Jesus picked a tax collector showed that he, um, yeah, didn't care. And then most of them were fishermen. So they weren't people who had studied, you know, rabbinical law. and um, None of them went to the university. Um, probably none of them could speak um, Greek very well. And one of them was Judas. Um, Luke is the one who tells us that before picking the 12, Jesus prayed all night. And that's, I think, in chapter 6. Yeah, so that's in Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the hills to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Did, did Jesus ever talk to the apostles about how succession would work, how holy would be after? Well, we don't have that directly, no. So, but we see it in practice. We see Paul instructing Timothy and Titus to ordain successors after them, and he's ordaining Timothy and Titus. And we see that... Um, Tim, Timothy is ordained. So it's in the letter um, of St. Paul to Timothy. There's a first letter and a second letter. And in both letters, um, Paul reminds Timothy that of the grace that is in Timothy from the laying on of Paul's hands. Right? So we can see that's ordination right there. And Paul also gives... Uh-huh, yeah? Um, what's exactly a deacon? What's a deacon? Okay, so deacon, we don't see Jesus directly instituting the deacons. That happens in Acts chapter 6. And so the, um, the deacons are helping the apostles. So in Acts chapter 6, we can see that there was um, the 12 apostles had too much to do. They were preaching, they were um, teaching the faith, and they were also um, being asked to decide everything and to decide about works of charity for the widows, and, the, and it was too much. And so they decided to appoint deacons to help them above all with the charitable aspect of the church. But deacons, so deacons do two things. They help with the liturgy. So very often, and most parishes have a permanent deacon who helps out with the liturgy. So we've got them here at the cathedral. And then and they also help with um, charitable works in the parish. Right? And it corresponded to, in Israel, there was the same three levels. And there was one high priest, there were many priests, and there were many Levites. That's what corresponds in Israel. And the Levites were members of a tribe, the tribe of Levi. And every member of that tribe helped the priests with the liturgy. Liturgy means the public prayer of the church. Okay. So why did, I think we, we already answered this. Why did Jesus do this? To govern his church. And it enabled, so here's the, the thing. Jesus could have 
So how do Protestants, it's not as if Protestants don't have church governance. They do, but how does it work? It's usually simply by way of democratic elections, right? So the Methodists will get together and they'll choose their leaders and they'll choose their policy. And so that's, we could say, from the bottom up. But what Jesus chose to do for governing his church was from the top down. And this is a matter of faith. In other words, how do I know which is the right way, I have to look to scripture to see that Jesus chose apostles and gave them an authority that's from the Father. Right? He, he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Whoever listens to me, uh, whoever refuses to listen to you, refuses to listen to me. And if they refuse to listen to me, they're refusing to listen to my Father who sent me. Right? So basically, Jesus, in that way, told us that we are to obey the, um, the apostles and their successors. All right. And we can see that the 12 worked together. So that the 12 were a college in the sense that it was a kind of communal governance. So it's very interesting the way Jesus, because he, he could have just simply picked one apostle, right, Peter, and made his one sort of like, you know, one king or emperor. But he didn't do that. He chose 12, but of the 12, he gave a special role to one of the 12. So it's the governance of the church is both collegial in the sense that, so there were originally 12. Today, there are 2,000, whatever, maybe more than that. So today, there are thousands of bishops in the whole Catholic world. Um, but they're held together because one of them is the principle of unity, and that's the successor of Peter. Right? And so we can see that the church today has the same structure it did during Jesus' public ministry. Twelve apostles and one Peter, who's the leader of the twelve, even though the real leader is Jesus, right? So during the, obviously during his public ministry, the head of the church is Jesus. He's always the head. Peter's never the head properly, right? It's Jesus who's the head of the church. Peter is only his vicar, right? He stands in his place. And his task is to preserve the unity. And, and yeah, maybe we'll see some of those texts. I got to go a little faster here. So let's look now at the Pope. So the Pope is simply the Bishop of Rome. Whoever is elected to be the Bishop of Rome is the Pope or successor of Peter. And the reason for that is because Peter um, left Jerusalem. He went first to Antioch, and then he went to Rome. And that's where he governed um, the Diocese of Rome, it was obviously time of persecution. The emperor was Nero, and there was a terrible persecution there, and Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. He didn't want to be crucified the same way as Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. And we have his bones, um, and they're under the high altar in St. Peter's. Right, so that's St. Peter's is built on the bones of Peter, um, and so th that's why his successors are bishops of Rome, right? Because that's where he died. And it's also where Paul died. Paul um, was also martyred under Nero at Rome. And so um, the successor of Peter is the head of the college. So all the bishops share a common governance. They're, every bishop is head of their own diocese, and they share a common governance or care for the whole church. Um, but 
Peter is the head of that college, the, the successor of Peter. So today, Pope Francis. Right? And he's pastor of the Universal Church. Archbishop Rosansky isn't pastor of the Universal Church, but of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Right? But only Francis is the pastor of the Universal Church. Right? And the same thing would be true of other patriarchs. They're only patriarchs over a particular territory. Right? It's only the successor of Peter who has that universal jurisdiction. And that's, jurisdiction simply means that he has the right to act in the whole world in the church. He doesn't usually do so, right? He lets Archbishop Rosansky govern here, but he can intervene if there's a necessity. Okay. Do you have a question now? Okay. Right, so that's what we mean by saying that he has full, supreme, immediate, and universal power. But remember, power in the church isn't, we tend to get this wrong. We think of power in terms of, I don't know, riches or, or something like that. But power in the church is service. That's, and so the title of the Pope is to be the servant of the servants of God. Right? And Jesus made that very clear, that I've come not to be served, but to serve. Now, it's true, in the history of the church, popes have in the past sometimes sought temporal power and much too much. Right? This was the case in the Renaissance and Baroque periods. And that was partly because um, the... the European society was all Catholic. And so there was um, a, a strong harmony between church and state, which is a good thing, but it has this negative outcome that people seek church office for power and advancement, and that's, um, that's the opposite of Jesus' vision. Okay. Um, so the, yeah, the College of Bishops um, governs the church with the Pope. A good way to see this is an ecumenical council. An ecumenical council is when the pope invites all the bishops of the world to come together with him to um, resolve a crisis or um, a difficult situation. So an example would be the Reformation. After Martin Luther broke from the church and, and, and Calvin as well, um, the church called the Council of Trent to deal with the issues raised at the Reformation. So that would be in response to a crisis. And in the first thousand years, there were many councils called with regard to heresies, heresies about the nature of Christ or the nature of the Trinity. The most recent council is the Second Vatican Council from 1962 to 1965, and it was different than the others in the sense that there wasn't a crisis in the same visible way as the earlier councils, but um, it was a kind of crisis, and what we were talking about before, the problem of um, Europe and the Western world becoming more secularized, and the need to, um, to come to, for the bishops to come together to study how to evangelize to the modern world. So basically that the, was the mission of the Second Vatican Council. All right? And so in a council, you see the successors of the apostles together with the pope consulting together. But the pope can act by himself if he chooses, but he almost never chooses to. Popes almost always govern by consulting the bishops of the world. Okay, so let's look at infallibility. So I mentioned this. So infallibility is um, when the pope or an ecumenical council, so either the pope alone, but usually it's the pope with the bishops, um, teaches something definitive, something that has to be held 
by all the faithful of the church. And he has to make it clear that what he's teaching has to be held definitively by everyone. And only in that case is the teaching of the church infallible. And what do we mean by infallible? Simply true. In other words, something that won't be wrong, and therefore I don't need to um, doubt it or fight against it. I ought not to deny it because I would be denying something that God has guaranteed to be true. That doesn't mean there can't be development. So I mentioned before, there's development in the sense that, so take that example, outside the church, no salvation. That would be a dogma of faith from the early church. But we're understanding it more precisely today because of invincible ignorance. So we're saying, outside the church, no salvation. For those who know that the church is the true church. But for people who are invincibly ignorant, yes, they can be saved outside the visible church. So it's, um, that teaching is infallible, but it gets clarified over time. Does that? So the church has a power to teach infallibly. Um, and how do we recognize it? We recognize it when um, we can see that there's some reference to a teaching being definitive and having to be believed or held firmly by all the faithful. Uh, what would be an example? The whole creed is infallible teaching. Right? So everything that's in the creed. But also a lot of other things that came up, say, at the Reformation, the Council of Trent. So um, that there are seven sacraments, all the books of the, um, of the Bible. Right? So that difference between Catholics and Protestants about which are the, the true books of the Old Testament, that would be something infallibly taught by the church. Um, that the Pope is this, um, has the power to teach infallibly is infallibly taught by the church. Right? You might think that's circular there, but... Um, the um, doctrines on Mary that we looked at about a month ago, right? that Mary is ever virgin, that Mary is immaculately conceived, that Mary is the mother of God, and Mary was assumed to heaven, all of those are also infallibly taught. And we call them dogmas if they're revealed by God. So a dogma is something revealed by God and taught infallibly by the church. I don't know, I mean, sometimes people ask, can you give me a list of all the dogmas? And I can't, actually, because um, sometimes it's not so clear. Um, but the, the, the simplest way is the creed. And so what do we, for a dogma, I have to believe it. And the reason I'm believing it is not because it seems most reasonable to me. So let me take an, an example of something taught infallibly that's controversial, is um, that women can't be ordained priests. Um, and so John Paul II said this must be definitively held by all the members of the church. All right, so if I get, come across those words, definitively held by all the members of the church, I can see that's a teaching that is not going to change. All right, and the fact that something is controversial doesn't mean that it's changeable. Right? It depends how it's been taught. By the, um, so it hasn't been um, taught infallibly that deacons have to be men. But I think that, I'll, I'll stay out of that. Um, so um, many things are not infallibly taught. Right? So most of the, uh, in the catechism, not everything in the catechism has been taught infallibly. 
That doesn't mean it's up for grabs. So this is really important. The church teaches lots of things not, with, um, not using these words. In other words, most of the teaching of the church simply puts forward a doctrine to follow and then doesn't say this is definitive and has to be held by all the members of the church or anyone who denies this, let him be excommunicated. Um, that's relatively rare. So the, the majority of the teaching of the church doesn't, isn't definitive and infallible. Should I follow it? Or rather, should you follow it also? Um, and the answer is yes. But recognizing it could be changed because it's not infallible. But I should still adhere to it because Jesus and the Holy Spirit assist the pope and the bishops in teaching. And I shouldn't think I'm smarter or more enlightened than the bishops and the pope, right? And all right, I'm a theologian, I, you know, I, but that, that's not the same thing. They are given a special mission by having received holy orders that I don't have and that you don't have, all right? And it makes life a lot simpler. If the church teaches this, I hold this. All right, questions on that? Let me say something about um, why do we think that the Pope, yeah, so here's, um, there's, uh, maybe I should say this. There are three conditions for a church being infallible. It's got to be the Pope teaching as supreme pastor. He doesn't always do that. If Pope Francis is giving an interview on an airplane, is he speaking as the Pope? Probably not. Maybe I should say certainly not. He's speaking as Francis, um, but not as Pope um, it's when he writes an encyclical or a formal document or gives a formal discourse in which you know, he signs his name and it's put forth. But even that um, isn't going to be infallible unless it's also said to be definitive. Pope Francis hasn't taught anything in this way, and neither did Pope Benedict. They taught lots of things, and we should hold them, but they weren't teaching infallibly. And then it's got to be on faith and morals. The Pope can't teach something about, you know, Soccer or, or um, the weather or, or even empirical science, right? That's not faith and morals, right? So if the Pope writes sorry, an encyclical about, um, let's say, the environment, it, it's church teaching that we should care for the environment. But if he gives scientific um, uh, examples or if he quotes scientists in the document, that's not faith and morals, right? I mean, I'm not saying I should disbelieve it, but he's not speaking there. Um, that doesn't bind my conscience um, in the same way as a teaching on faith and morals. All right? Let me say something. So why do we think that the Pope has this um, special place? And it's because, um, did I not give you this? Yeah, it doesn't look like I gave you it this. It's from, the key text is Matthew 16 and verse 18. And we looked at this when we were looking at Jesus' public ministry. Um, Jesus asked the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And um, Peter speaks on behalf of all, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? And what does Jesus say? Um, he, um, he praises him because he hasn't spoken from flesh and blood, but from the Father who speaks. And then he now gives... So, Peter gave Jesus his name, Son of God and Messiah. Jesus gives Peter a new name. So Peter's um, 
normal name was Simon, Simon son of Jonah. That's his ordinary name. Jesus gave him a new name. This doesn't happen very often in scripture, right? There are only a few examples. Um, a key example is Abraham. Abraham gets a new name when God makes a covenant with him. And so Simon gets a new name, Peter, which is simply, so in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, it was Kephas. That was Peter's new name, not Peter, because Jesus spoke Aramaic, not Greek. And um, Kephas means rock. And so it got translated into Greek as Petros, right? And that's where we get Simon Peter, rock. And Jesus says, I am making you rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail over it. And I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that what you bind will be bound, and what you unbind will be bound in heaven. Um, and so that was a very solemn teaching. Now, what's, does anybody know what happens right after that? Right after that, Peter and um, Jesus then teach that he's going to be crucified. We're going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified and rise from the dead. And Peter says, oh, no, that, don't let that happen to you. That, and what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, for you're not speaking as God speaks, but as men speak. And so that comes right after Peter was named Rock. And that also is showing us something, right? That the fact that Peter is the Rock doesn't mean that he's always acting in a holy way. And we're not to be scandalized in the church when successors of Peter are less than we would desire. And because Peter was. All right, questions on that? And we've run out of time. I'll leave it there. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of Holy Mother Church, that we may love her and be members until we die. Through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yes, yeah, so we should think of the church 